to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is God's Word. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading of your Word, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, minds to, to grasp simple truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Every Christian... Maybe not every Christian. Most Christians enjoy a little bit of Bible trivia because we all think that we know the Bible usually better than we actually do. And trivia is one of those opportunities where we get to show it. I'm going to ask this morning throughout the sermon, there will be three trivia questions, although they're not actually trivia, uh, trivia type questions related to the Bible or yourself. We're not going to answer out loud. I just want you to answer in your own heart. See, see if you can answer the question, and I'll give the answer, and then you can grade yourself after the fact. So here's the first question. Answering in your own mind. Based on Scripture, what do death, life, angels, rulers, things present... Things to come, powers, height, and depth all have in common. What do all of these things have in common? The answer is, none of these things have the ability to separate us from the love of God. None of them. More particularly, the love of God as manifested in... Christ Jesus, our Lord, which is really quite fascinating because as it pertains angels, angels was in the list, one angel we know famously slaughtered 185,000 men in a night. I don't think that was his limit, but that, that seemed to be sort of a small thing for an angel, and yet thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands and myriads of, and myriads of angels could not interpose between the love of God and a Christian. That love manifested in Christ Jesus. All of the angels, Paul says, could not separate us from the love of God. Nowhere is this love of God seen more clearly than as we watch the Lord Jesus dying as our substitute. John says that the love of God was made manifest and that God sent His Son into the world and that His Son was the propitiation for our sins. So the Son of God, bearing in His body and soul the waves of God's fury, in order that having that fury removed from us, we can now be reconciled to God, we can come to God and have Him as our God, as our Father, as our portion forever and ever. John says that is where you can see the love of God. You see, it's hard to understand the love of God. Well, of course, it's impossible to understand the love of God. But John says, here's where you can see it. Here's where you can you put, almost put a, a, uh, some substance to it, if you will. Just look at Christ, the Son of God, suffering on the cross in the place of sinners. That is the display of the love of God. As the old Welsh hymn puts it, Here is love. Vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Where can I see love? Where can I see the love of God? Look at the prince of life pouring out his blood for our souls. And this prince of life, this Jesus we learn in Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I think it's safe to say that, that we could claim without hesitation that the love of God for us in Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
as Jeremiah even said. In, in the book of laments, lamentations, he said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He's looking around at his city, laid waste, and he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The love of God in Christ is from everlasting to everlasting. And the history of God's salvation in Christ is really a love story or the story of love. Love yesterday, love today, love forever. This love is without bounds or limits. We can't measure this love. It, we, we can't get a tape measure around the edge of it and begin to pull. We can't measure its length or its width. We can't ascend its height. We can't plumb its depths because, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, this love of Christ surpasses knowledge. And yet he still prays that we would know it. Know it and, and go ahead and understand from the outset, as you seek to know this love, you're not going to get to the edge of it. You'll never find the, the, the far length of it. We cannot stop it. We can't slow it down. We can't make it ease up. We can't comprehend its strength. We can't comprehend its, its certainty as God is immutable. His love is immutable. We can't comprehend that because we are changing, 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 changing. Every tick of the clock is a change for us, but no change in God. His love is that. Utterly unchangeable, eternal, and immutable beyond comprehension. Now, that love is the, the image, the, the reality that Paul says our marriage, marriages are supposed to foreshadow, typify. When he says in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, but I'm speaking that, or I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's talking about marriage. The love that a husband is to have for a wife and a wife for a husband and how that love manifests itself. And Paul says, I'm gonna, if, you, if you think that's hard to believe or hard to apply, let me go ahead and go even further. It's actually looking and referring to the love for Christ and the church. Immutable, eternal, unchangeable, unfathomable, incomprehensible love. Our marriages are supposed to reflect that or give some sort of image of that. Tell that story. Now it's with that in mind that we read, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That sound, those sound like extreme words to the modern ear. Not nearly as extreme or magnificent or incomprehensible as the love of God, which we are meant to be showing a little, portraying a little. Obviously, we, we can't. We fall far short, but this is, this is the picture. We have a, a standard set up. And Paul says, now in your marriage, look at that standard. And by that standard, then he says what we've just read. Now, I want to open up these two verses under three headings. Number one, the members being addressed. Number two, the manner of the address. And number three, the marrow of the address. Number one, the members being addressed. Knowing as we, as we do that Paul addresses people from several different categories in this chapter, and he jumps from them category to category to category to category, knowing that we ought to ask here, who's he talking to? To which members of the church of Corinth is he now speaking? Well, notice what he says, to the married the married, those already joined or and still joined in the bond of marriage. He's talking to married people. Now this would be in contrast with in the rest of the chapter, the unmarried, the widows, and the virgins. He's going to talk to them elsewhere. Now he's talking to married people. Now coming out of our, our study last Lord's Day, we might ask, why does he need to talk to married people again? Did he not just talk to them in verses 1 through 5? And, and the answer is yes. But remember the specific details that he was dealing with there in verses 1 through 5. They were claiming, it seems, or, or some of them had adopted this idea that it's, it's good, literally, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. 
They, they were adopting this, this celibate philosophy in, in their church, and it could be translated, it's good for a man not to touch his wife. They were probably thinking or had began to imbibe this idea that even within the confines of marriage, the most spiritual way to live is celibate. Don't touch one another. And there in verses 1 through 5, he's addressing people who were married, those people, thinking the, the lifestyle that pleases God. If I want to honor the Lord with my marriage, then we need to, we need to stop touching each other. Honey, we, we got to stop. I want to honor the Lord. That's what he was addressing there. Well, now he's addressing what seems to be either a different group of married people or at least the same group, but with regard to another potential error. Because he's, he now says something different. He's now addressing the matter of divorce. What's happening in Corinth that would lead Paul to pen verses 10 and 11? We try to think about the church in Corinth based on what he's just said, based on what we know of them. Why does he have to say what he says in verses 10 and 11? More than likely, this is, this is kind of a guess, although it's, I think it fits with the, the context. More than likely, Paul knows that what he had said in verses 1 through 5 might lead some people to think that ending their marriage was another option on the table. He made it clear that celibacy within marriage is not an option. Actually, it is a very spiritual and godly thing to honor the, the, the uh, obligations of marriage, we could say. He already said that. And so they're thinking, maybe he's preemptively addressing their thinking that might go to the other extreme. And that thinking would go something like this. Remaining celibate and refusing to satisfy the appetites of my physical body is clearly more spiritual. That's clearly the holy way to live. Remember, God told the people at the foot of Mount Sinai, I'm coming down in three days, don't go near a woman. David told the priest, my, my men always stay away from women on a journey. Paul shows up into town. Paul doesn't have a wife with him. That's clearly more spiritual. Again, I'm, I'm being ironic, but this is their thinking. But then he just said, if we're married, we do have physical obligations to one another, to love one another the way that God has designed us to. Okay, I hear what you're saying. But there's still another option. Let's just get a divorce. If we end the marriage, well then that releases me from the obligations of verses 1 through 5. Just a guess. Another guess Another option would be, why is he saying this? Well, people got divorced a lot and he wanted to tell them to stop it. Either way, he's addressing the matter of divorce. It's important to note, I think, that he makes no mention of adultery. Paul is not addressing married Christians whose spouses have committed Adultery, at least not explicitly as if that were the problem happening in Corinth. He says nothing about divorce or remarriage in light of adultery because adultery isn't in view. Now, I'm a permanence guy. That, that, if he would have said that, that would really swing in my favor. But I have to be honest with the text. He doesn't say anything about adultery at all. At best, again, he's addressing married Christians who are leaning toward divorce in order to pursue the enticements of, a, of a, the celibate life which they imagined were more spiritual, or was the more spiritual life. But he doesn't say anything about adultery. To me, there's another side of that that is very interesting. He makes no mention of adultery even though he's already made it quite clear that sexual immorality was a prevalent problem in Corinth. In chapter 5, verse 1, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind not even tolerated among pagans. He doesn't say, you only got, you've only got one man in your church who's sexually immoral. No, he says, it's among you to the extent that you've got one man who has his father's wife. And in chapter 7, verse 1, remember he says, but because of sexual immoralities, literally, plural, cases of sexual immorality... In 2 Corinthians 12, he references those who have not repented of sexual immorality. We know that it was prevalent in the church in Corinth. 
and yet he makes no mention of it here. Do what you will with that. He doesn't, he's not mentioning the issue of adultery. Either he's talking to these people who were thinking they should get divorced in order to remain celibate, or he's just giving a general statement about divorce. So as for the members which he addresses, he's speaking to those who are already married and who may be tempted to initiate a divorce, perhaps in order to live a more holy, so-called holy celibate life, or for some other reason. But that's who he's talking to. Number two, the manner of the address. The manner of the address. Notice he says, to the married... I give this charge. This address comes in the form of a charge. That is a command, an order. Now that's very different than what we just saw in, in the previous section. He says, now as a concession I say this, not a command. He says things like, I wish or I say. But here he says, I give this charge. I give this command. It's different. This instruction comes with the force of authority. It comes with the expectation of obedience. He's not leaving room for disagreement. He's not saying here are some of the options you might have. Pick and choose as you will. He's not making a suggestion. He's giving an order, a command, a charge based on divine precedent. How do we know it's divine precedent? Well, notice what he says. To the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. What he means is that here he's referring to express statements made by the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. Now, whether Paul had perhaps Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel, we don't know. No doubt the teachings of Jesus had been uh, verbally passed down and handed on. And we know that Jesus spoke about the matter of divorce on at least two occasions, you can read about them in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16. When he says, when Paul says, not I, but the Lord, what he's saying is, I'm, I'm just handing, handing to you the explicit statements that came from Jesus Christ Himself on this issue of divorce. That's important to note. It's also important to note the, the flip side of that, what he's not saying. Paul is not, when he says, not I, but the Lord. He's not saying, what I'm about to say comes from God and everything else is just me, it's just my opinion, take it or leave it. He's not saying that. There are liberal scholars or readers who would say, uh, this is one of those evidences that we should really just focus on the red letters. Focus on what Jesus said. Paul was a little extreme. Even here he says, not I, but the Lord. That's not what's happening. He's not giving us reasons to see distinctions between the authority of Christ and Paul's writings, we know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. The black letters are the words of God. The red letters are the words of God. The, the first five books of the Bible are the words of God. All, all, all 66, all the way down the line, we can go through it, they are all the words of God. So he's not saying, now I'm going to give you the Word of God, whereas before I was just giving you some opinions. He's not saying that. He's not pitting himself against the Lord. He's aligning himself with the specific things the Lord said. He's saying, I'm, I'm just going to repeat the known teaching of Jesus. So the manner in which Paul now speaks is that of an authoritative command. Not a suggestion, not, not multiple choice. He's not giving options. And he's giving this command which he has taken straight from the lips of the Son of God himself. Paul is showing that his view on this subject is the same as the view of Jesus. Thirdly, the marrow of the address. The marrow, that, that is the, the meat, the, the heart of the matter, the, the centerpiece of the teaching. The marrow of what Paul has to say to these people who are considering or maybe thinking that divorce is an option. From verse 10, the wife 
should not separate from her husband. From verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. Now you say, you left out a part. We'll come back to that. Right now we want the marrow. I'm going to start off with the, the heart and then we'll, we'll address that, the parenthetical statement in a minute. In normative fashion, the way that he does throughout this chapter, he addresses both spouses, husband and wife, man and woman. And again, just like we saw last week, what he is saying here, he's not giving it as ammo to spouses so that they can grab it and then posture themselves against their spouse. That's the way it's often read. For those of you who weren't here, how, how often or do we not have the tendency to read, the husband should give... His, to his wife or conjugal rights. And a husband reads, or a wife reads that and says, you owe me something. Well, that's not, that's not the, the way that he wants us to take that. This is the same. He, he's not giving ammo to wives to use against their husbands or ammo to husbands to use against their wives. This is meant to bring them together. So he says to the wife, a wife should not separate from her husband. Here's the second trivia question. Answer in your mind. Do not answer out loud, but think. Are you a wife? Are you a wife? Just, just think for a second. Even within your own mind. My wife? Okay. If you can say yes to that question, now he's talking to you. This is, this is for you. If you're a husband... These words are not for you to throw in your wife's face and say, Aha! You can't leave me. I can do whatever I want. I can live however I please because Paul said you can't leave. That's, that's not for you. He's not giving you ammo to use against your wife or the wife to use against her husband. These words are for wives. So if you're a wife, here's what he says to you. But if you're a husband, well, your job is stated in other texts like, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Those are, those are the texts you can take as ammo if you want, men, husbands. But, but this is for the wife. Wives, if you answered yes to the question, am I a wife, then here's the teaching. You are not to separate from your husband. Then he addresses the husbands. To the husband... He says, the husband should not divorce his wife. Last trivia question. You know where this is going. Just think within your, in your, your own mind. Don't answer out loud. Am I a husband? Think about it. Am I a husband? If you can say, yes, I'm a husband. Okay, here's what he has to say to you. The husband should not divorce his wife. If you're a wife, these words are not for you to throw in your husband's face and say, you can't leave me, you're stuck with me, I can do whatever I want because Paul said the husband should not divorce his wife. This is not for you to use in that way. This is for the husband to apply to himself. The duty of a wife can be seen in passages like Ephesians 5.24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, you can use that as ammo for yourselves if you'd like. But for the husbands, very clear, you are not to divorce your wife. This is the teaching. This is the, the marrow. It is as clear as it is simple. There's nothing mysterious in, in the original languages. I don't have to say that actually the word is. No, no it, 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 the way it is written here, it, it really is that simple. Wives, divorce is off the table. Husbands, divorce is off the table. Now back to that parenthetical statement. We have what, I, what we might call a situational provision. What do I mean by that? Think about the situation that we find ourselves in. We talked about this two weeks ago. We live in a post-fall world where every marriage is a union of two sinners. Every marriage. Two sinners. And the reality is, and we could, we could consider this an axiom, sinners 
sin. Every marriage is a joining of two sinners, and both of those sinners, as sinners, will sin. Now, in light of that situation, Paul includes this parenthetical statement to his message to the wife. I think it could go to either spouse. In light of the fact that we live in a fallen world, perhaps sin has taken place, he says, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now this language, but if she does, sounds forward-looking, which is, is kind of odd. It, it almost sounds like Paul says, she shouldn't, but if she in the future, if she decides to, here are the, the, the way she should the way she, can, she should conduct herself. Listen to three other translations. Uh, the Berean literal translation puts it this way, but if indeed she is separated. Smith's literal translation, if also she be separated. Literal emphasis translation, if she may be separated. When you read it that way, you, you, you can see how Paul is not really addressing what may happen in the future, but what may already be the case. In other words, at some point in the past, the wife has separated. Separation has occurred. And in that case, Paul lays out two options. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Now, it's very doubtful, to me anyway, it's very doubtful that, that if we put all of this together, Paul is saying this. I'm now addressing people who are married with the authority of a command that I got from the lips of Jesus. Wives should not separate from your husbands, but it's okay if you do. If you, find, if you do that, just stay unmarried or go back to your husband. That seems a little odd to me. That seems strange. It would, it would be a direct contradiction to the whole demeanor of the passage, of what he's just said. It would, be, it would contradict the command. Wives should not separate from her hus- their husbands. But if you do, it's basically okay as long as you're willing to submit to these two options. Instead, I believe what Paul's doing here is very akin to what many of us parents have to do at times. A parent might look at their child and say, clean your room. If your room is not clean in an hour, you will be spanked. Now when we say that, we don't want our children to hear us saying, here's the command, clean your room, but if you don't, that's perfectly fine as long as you're cool with the the punishment. Disobedience, we never say that to let them think disobedience is a viable option. Now, in a fallen world, will they disobey? Many times they will. But we don't want to give them the impression that it's okay to disobey. What we have said is a warning as to what will happen if they do disobey. Disobedience is never acceptable. So Paul here gives the command, the wife should not separate from her husband. Then he addresses reality in a fallen world where separation may have already occurred. If that's already taken place, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, even for people who think celibacy is going to be the the better lifestyle, eventually, singleness in this regard is going to prove a great hardship. Reconciliation with her husband is really, I think, what Paul's putting forward as the only appropriate action. If if this has happened, what he's saying, if if you've already separated, come back together. He doesn't say, that's fine. If you want to get married, he doesn't say to these people what he said to the widows. If you want to get married, that's fine. If you don't want to get married, that's fine, just as long as it's in the Lord. He doesn't say that. He says either stay single or go back to your husband. So I don't think that Paul is giving an escape clause. He's pressing the point of the unambiguous teaching of Christ himself that marriage is the union between a man and a woman of two joining in one flesh that what God has joined together, man is not to separate, 
that a Christian woman should never initiate a divorce from her husband, that a Christian husband should never initiate a divorce from his wife. If we wanted to pair this with what Paul said in verse 6, as a concession, I say this, not a command. Coming out of verse 6 into this section, if we wanted to sum it all up, it would sound like this. You don't have to get married, but you do have to stay married. That's the point. You don't have to get married, but if you're married, you do have to stay married. Christians are never to initiate a divorce from their spouse. Now let me give you a few reasons why this is important. Number one, because the Bible says that we shouldn't. The Bible says that we shouldn't, as we just see here. If anything is clear in Scripture, it is this. The Bible being the Word of God means that what it says comes with God's authority, and God says the wife should not separate from her husband, the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, we as Christians, we would say, well, that sort of goes without saying. Does it? In today's evangelical culture, does that really go without saying? God said it very simply, so we'll just take it. Has our culture not become increasingly more friendly to the idea of divorce? Hasn't a large portion of evangelicalism followed suit? The culture is accepting. I know people in other countries that still do not allow for no-fault divorce. You, you can't just go get a divorce. I don't, I don't remember when that happened here. Most of us have grown up in a world where that, that was not even a concept. If you want a divorce, just go get it. That changed, and evangelicals, Christians, professing Christians, have just sort of followed suit. It's normative. It's normal in our society that this happens. Have we not, in our quest to consistently bring God out of heaven down to the level of fallen and sinful men, developed an ever-increasing list of reasons why divorce is acceptable? We just keep adding to the list. Even if people don't take the permanence view, they would say, well, I do see some things. And then they'll say, well, and, and, and in light of this, then probably this. And in, in light of that, then probably this too. And the list just keeps growing on. It just gets longer and longer and longer as to why it's acceptable. We just keep adding to the list. This is a notion that would have been unthinkable in past ages among Christians. But now it's just fairly normal. I would guess that most of us have a fairly close association with someone who, as a Christian, is divorced from a spouse. And almost every one of them will probably be able to, in their minds, justify their actions. I have never met a divorced Christian that I can remember who said, I was wrong, I did wrong, I sinned, I repented, and praise the Lord, He's forgiven me. I've never saw that. Amongst Christians, usually it's, well, this happened, and well, I mean, it was just this and this, and it just didn't work out, and this happened, this. No, no conscious awareness that God hates divorce. Why did it happen? God didn't say, I hate it on these conditions. He said He hates it. But we have changed. Our thinking on this matter has changed. And so I think it's very helpful from time to time to come back to this. The Bible tells me so. The Bible says it. I cannot do something that God told me not to do. I can't. Number two, in divorce, God's design for marriage is thwarted. In divorce, God's design for marriage is thwarted. God's design is, is very simple. One man, one woman for life. When Jesus was asked about divorce, He said, Have you not read? That's Jesus' way of saying, Does the Bible not say? Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, when Jesus was asked about divorce, He said God's design is one man, one woman for life. Don't change that. Divorce is the exact opposite of that. God says, get married and stay married. Divorce says, I'm married 
but I'm not staying married. See, it's the opposite. We will very often, and I think rightly, bemoan our culture's antipathy for marriage and for gender roles and for sexuality and, and for the family, things that we, we treasure. But has it not been the case that for a long time now professing Christians have, be, have been lowering the bar? We, we joined them. We said, we'll take the bar from here to here. They come in in the night and say, well, we'll just take it down to here. If it's okay to throw off God's design in marriage as pertains its permanence, which is what many Christians would do, why are we surprised when those who hate God throw off His design in marriage as it pertains to who should be married? We, we, I was talking to a man yesterday, and, and it was, you know, it's just, they're just dumbfounded. We, people don't even know what, what is a man and what is a woman. We're just so backwards, in this, and I agree, it's, it's silly. I actually thought about saying before long, they'll be telling us we've been walking the wrong direction the whole time. We should be walking this way. That, that's where we are. Just utter insanity. Why would we expect that their bar is going to be higher than ours if we throw off God's design at a little point? Well, the people who hate God are, are not going to go higher than we. They're going to go even further. If we say we love God and yet show a very little concern for His design, we shouldn't expect the unbelieving world to do any better. Divorce thwarts God's design. God said one woman, one man forever. Divorce says one man, one woman for a time. Three, divorce displays an unbiblical gospel. Marriage is to be a shadow of the gospel love between Christ and His church. This love, as we said at the beginning, is an eternal, unchangeable, covenant love. Christ loves us at our absolute worst. Christ does not cast off His people. But when a Christian, really any couple, but I'm speaking to Christians, when a Christian couple gets divorced, it is as if they say this, here's the gospel, the love of God that will endure all anything of the love of God that may or may not last through the night here's the good news God has made a fair weather commitment to his people that as long as things are going well as long as we don't cross certain boundaries he'll be there for us that's not the gospel of the Bible that's an unbiblical gospel the biblical gospel says that Christ loved us first that Christ loved us while we were yet sinners the Bible reveals to us a God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the gospel. Divorce displays an unbiblical gospel. Number four, initiating divorce manifests an unbelief in the reconciling power of God. Initiating divorce manifests an unbelief in the reconciling power of God. Did God not make light to shine out of darkness? Did God not deliver the Hebrews from Egypt with a mighty hand and great acts of power, even parting the sea so that they could walk across on dry land? Did God not bring Jonah out of the belly of the fish? Did God not bring forth a child from the womb of a virgin? Did God not raise Jesus from the dead? Did God not take us who were once rebels and make us into His sons and daughters? Did God not reconcile Himself to sinners? He who is perfectly holy and righteous, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, He reconciled us to Himself. Then can He not reconcile to sinners? Is that outside of the bounds? Now, here's what we do. Yeah, but, yeah, but we're sinners. That, that's a little different because... No, no, it's actually less. We're arguing from the greater to the lesser. It was more, speaking in human terms, more difficult for God to be reconciled to the most holy of sinners, the most moral of sinners, for God to be reconciled to that most moral man or woman. That was... Ex 
crossing a far greater expanse than bringing two sinners back together and reconciling them. But initiating divorce or calling it quits is as if to say, I just don't believe God can fix this. Number five, divorce puts both spouses in a place of temptation. God has made us male and female. God has stated unequivocally, it is not good for man to be alone. He's made us with natural desires and affections for the opposite sex. God made men and women to come together in marriage, and it is a good thing. But when a couple is divorced, all of a sudden both of those people are now put in a situation where they're not with their spouse, but they still have all of those natural inclinations and desires that God has put in them as biological males and females. And it puts both of them at great risk. Now they're living in the world of, or at great risk of sexual temptation. Number six, divorce often leaves both parties with lifelong pain. Regardless of the circumstances, most people, especially Christians, are going to carry the scars and the baggage and the pain of divorce with them for the rest of their lives. Knowing what we know about divorce, no one should rejoice in the thought. Now, people do this. People will, will celebrate and, you know, pop the cork on a, a bottle of wine. Finally got my divorce. They do the same thing for their abortions. They celebrate that. That doesn't, that doesn't make it right. It's not natural, and we know that. And, and there are people even here that I think you would say, God brought better things out of my divorce than I could ever have seen happening in my previous marriage. There are people here, I think, who would even say, I would not be a Christian if I had not gotten divorced and remarried. Okay? That's true. That doesn't mean that we, don't, we can't also admit that divorce and remarriage is, are wrong. To, to say that God took something sinful and brought something wonderful out of it is literally just to say God did what He has always been doing. The, the, the deck that God is working with, not that He was dealt it, but he, he decreed it, the deck that God is working with is fallen creatures, fallen creation, full of sin. That's what He's been doing from the beginning is bringing light out of darkness, bringing good from wickedness, bringing blessing from sin. That doesn't mean that we rejoice in the sin. God brought salvation out of the crucifixion of His Son, but we wouldn't pat the Roman soldiers on the back. Boy, you really swung that whip. I love the way you swing that hammer. you got to teach me that method sometime. We wouldn't do that. Even the Roman soldier that it, it does seem was maybe even converted at the foot of the cross. He wouldn't say, he wouldn't rejoice for the rest of his life. He would probably have to hang his head low and say, I am a believer. And yet I sorrow that I crucified the Lord of glory. He wouldn't rejoice in his sin just because something good came out of it. So we don't rejoice in the thought because divorce often still leaves lifelong pain. Even if it brings out something good, it carries with it at least the admission. Most Christians who've been in this situation are not proud to admit. They want to say, I want to put it behind me. I want to move beyond it. I don't want to talk about it because it's not a, a point of rejoicing. It's a point of pain. Christians are never to initiate a divorce. Now, in addition to those reasons why divorce should be shunned and, and some of the negative effects of it, I want to leave you with two other points. The first is this. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. When Jesus speaks of that sin which will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come, divorce is nowhere to be found. Not even mentioned, not in thought, not in idea, not in concept. It's nowhere near. You've got to go seven chapters back or seven chapters forward to find Christ talking about divorce. It is not the unpardonable sin. While the scars of divorce often remain for life, there's no reason to treat yourself or anyone else as if divorce is this sin that can't be forgiven. That's not right. That is not, 
I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm a permanence view guy. That's not the permanence view. The permanence view is not, if somebody's been divorced, they're a sinner forever. They can never get that one back. That's not the case. It's not the unpardonable sin. As a matter of fact, I believe divorce is included in that other category that Christ mentioned when He said, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Divorce is in that category. When we read of God that He's one forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, divorce falls in that category. That God forgives. When John says that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking about sins like divorce. It's not the unpardonable sin. It is a pardonable sin, a forgivable sin. This is one of those sins like that we take to God and drop as in the, the deepest part of the ocean and we watch it sink and it disappears and it's gone. This is one of those sins. It's not the unpardonable sin. You say, how can that be? I thought you said God hates divorce. The last point is that divorce is a sin paid for by Jesus Christ. This is how God can forgive sins. This is how God can forgive the sin of divorce. Because Jesus Christ paid for that sin. Remember that great love that we were talking about earlier, that love that our marriages are meant to typify? That love led the Son of God to bear in His own body on the cross the sins of His people, including the sin of divorce. Now, we live in a world where divorce is not treated like a sin. It's just not. Even as I, as I said, a man or a woman, Christian man or woman, should never initiate divorce. A lot of, a lot of some people here might have even recoiled from that. Never? Really? Never? That, that seems harsh. Because we don't want to admit that something God hates is actually sinful. But if we don't see divorce as sin, then we'll never see the love of God in Christ bearing that sin in His body on the cross. We miss out on the beauty of the gospel if we say, well, that's not a sin. That's just a, a whoopsie. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I'll just need a do-over. No, it's a sin. If we don't see the love of God in Christ bearing the guilt of the sin of divorce then we'll never feel like we can take that sin to Him and talk to Him about it and lay it at His feet. You'll carry it every day of your life. Even if only in the back of your mind you'll carry it. But think. Think about this. The only bridegroom, the only husband who has ever been personally, perfectly, and perpetually faithful to his bride... The only one, ladies, there's not a man in here who can live up to that. Not a man in here who has been personally, perpetually, perfectly faithful to his wife. The only one who ever was, the only man who never looked at a woman with lust in his eyes, who never wondered what it might be like just to be finished with this marriage, who was never tempted to throw in the towel, that one man, that perfect husband, went to the cross and bore the guilt and curse and anger of God for a countless host of husbands and wives who have not been so faithful. He bore it. He carried it. God treated His Son like a covenant breaker. Like a liar. Like a pervert like a serial adulterer and fornicator. God treated His Son like a man who would marry and cast off and marry and cast off and marry and cast off and then maybe in His latter years He would fall on His knees in repentance. And all of that God laid upon His Son and He crushed Him under the weight of that guilt and that sin. Why? Because He loved us. Because He wanted to be just while at the same time, time justifying the ungodly. How can He do it? He's got, to, he's got to pour out His wrath upon sin. He wanted to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but at the same time He could not leave the guilty unpunished, and so He punished His Son. 
Jesus Christ was punished for the sin of divorce. And as he was suffering that for the sin of divorce, he was showing himself to be the most faithful and loving husband that there's ever been. A husband who said, she's mine. Yeah, but she's done this. She's mine. Yeah, but what about this over here? She's mine. Well, you know she's been with all these other lovers. She's mine. I'm buying her with my blood. I own her. She's going nowhere. She's mine. He took the sins of his people on himself. And he proved himself to be the premier bridegroom. And again, all of us husbands, we have this command. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. So, three brief applications. Number one, are you married? This is not part of the trivia, so relax. Number one, are you married? Stay married. Stay faithful. Recognize, acknowledge that divorce is off the table. Number two, are you not yet married? Recognize that divorce is off the table. Before you even go in, it's off the table. And let that raise or heighten the seriousness with which you approach the subject of marriage. It's a lifelong commitment to another sinner. If you're not married, divorce is off the table. Keep that in mind. Number three, are you remarried? Have you been divorced and now you're remarried? Stay married. Stay faithful. Acknowledge that divorce is off the table. I, I don't believe that people who are remarried live the rest of their life in fornication or adultery. I don't think the Bible teaches that. If you're remarried, your job is to stay married, to stay faithful, and recognize that divorce is off the table. You say, how can, how can we do this? If you're not married, you say, I got it. Sounds good. Got that in my notes. I'll put that in the back of my pocket. People who are married, we recognize this is hard. God has laid upon us a, a very weighty and heavy thing that, that many times is very difficult. How can we do it? Well, the answer is looking at Jesus. Just look at Him. Get your spouse to look at Him. You look at Him. When they're looking at you, you just say, well, don't look at me, look at Him. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Pursue Him together. By His grace, marriages will be strong.